business of Israel's inheritance is almost finished, but there are still some finishing touches here. As with the last several chapters, 20 and 21, appear to include uh, just more mundane details that we don't really need to know, but they are a powerful witness to the Lord's promise. Remember that every word of God proves true. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. And He will show us that in Joshua time and time again. Tonight with the establishment of the cities of refuge and the allotment of cities and pasture lands to the Levites, God gives rest to Israel in the promised land. He has kept His word and given precisely what He said He would down to the details. When the word of the Lord is proclaimed, the heart of the Lord is revealed. God's desire is that His people would find rest in the certainty of His Word. Israel's rest in the promised land foreshadows the rest and provision God will grant to His people for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth where the covenant that keeps it all secure will never be broken because it isn't kept in force or ratified by the people but by Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the book of Joshua. God, I thank You for the opportunity to open Your Word and preach it again. I thank You, Lord, for those that have come to listen. Oh God, may You open all of our hearts to receive Your Word as dear children. And Father, I pray that You would help us to see Christ and what He's accomplished for us more clearly. We ask and pray this in His name. Amen. So in chapter 20 tonight, let me begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So, You'll notice here, the Lord takes the initiative and commands Joshua and Israel to complete the instructions given to Moses about setting aside cities of refuge. We uh, would have seen this back in Numbers 35, 9 to 34, Deuteronomy 4, 41 to 43, um, 19 as well, verses 1 to 13. These cities serve as temporary and or uh, ongoing places of asylum for those who had committed unintentional manslaughter, as we would call it in our day and age. They were a provision for those who had unintentionally, accidentally taken a human life. There in verse 3. Earlier in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 19, uh, there was an example given of two men had gone into the forest to cut down wood, and while they were swinging their axes, if the axe head of one flew off and hit the other and killed him, 
that man does not deserve to die as a murderer since he hadn't done it maliciously or deliberately to cause the death of his friend. So notice here that God's law takes such things into consideration, motives and intentions here in such things. If one didn't have the heart of a murderer, he shouldn't suffer the punishment of a murderer. In verses 3 and 5, we learn that the danger here, the, the need for the cities of refuge, was that the avenger of blood, that would be the nearest relative of the slain person who had the responsibility of maintaining the family's rights, might slay the manslayer, you know, in the heat of the moment, before the facts of the case could be known and dealt with properly. And in that case, vindictive vengeance would determine the outcome rather than proper retribution, which is just going to add injustice uh, to what was already a tragedy. For this reason, God's justice was made readily accessible to everyone in Israel in such cases. So six cities of refuge throughout the Promised Land were selected, three on each side of the Jordan. There was one in the north, one in the middle, and one in the south of both sets, uh, east and west. West of the Jordan, from north to south, you had Kadesh, Shechem, and Kiriath Arba, or Hebron, selected. Uh, east of the Jordan, from north to south, Golan, Ramoth, and Bezer were selected. That's verses 7 and 8. So Deuteronomy 19, it also instructed that roads were to be prepared to all these cities, and they were to be strategically located so that safety for the unintentional killer was always close. In any one of these cities, he was safe from the immediate wrath of the family's avenger of blood until the case could be properly decided. So things like that, just by the number and location of these cities, we see how accessible God's justice was meant to be and how practical his ways often were for Israel. But we also are getting a glimpse of the value of God's justice reflected in the provision of these cities. Note what this chapter is implying here heavily about the inherent sanctity of human life, both of the manslayer and the one who was unintentionally killed. God's concern that these cities be set up as he had instructed shows us the sanctity of the unintentional manslayer's life, yes. But don't forget that the slain man's life is considered sacred also. These cities of refuge weren't only places of safety for the manslayer. They were, in some degree or to some degree, uh, still places of exile for him. He has protection, but he's also suffering a penalty. He can't go home. Assuming the case was settled in his favor by the officials in the city of refuge, there in verse 6, he couldn't return to his hometown until the death of the current high priest at that time. And if he did try to leave the bounds of that city, he was fair game for the family's avenger of blood. That's Numbers 25, or 35, 26 to 28. That's how costly human life is to God, even when life is taken unintentionally. There are still consequences. There's still been a wrong done. The blood in the ground is still crying out, if you will, for justice. As Genesis told us, all life made in God's image is exceedingly sacred. Even the unintentional taking of a life was so serious that there could really be no release from one's time in the city of refuge until the current high priest had died. And I think that's interesting. There's a correlation there between the death of the high priest and the satisfaction of God's justice, apparently. Now, this is all very condensed here in Joshua 20, but Numbers 35, 31 to 34 gave us most of the details about these things, or the extended details. Apparently, 
there were some crimes for which capital punishment was the penalty that one could pay a ransom for with monetary compensation, but one could not pay a ransom if the crime was murder. Numbers 35, 31. Because blood pollutes the land, only the blood of the one who shed blood can atone for the land. The only acceptable payment for the crime of murder was the life, the blood of the murderer. Now, I believe that still holds true today. That's, that's never been rescinded, right? By God. A power has been granted uh, to governing authorities in Romans 13 because the sanctity of life has not changed. Right? That, that's never rescinded. You get to the Noahic covenant. If blood is taken, blood has to be taken by, you know, the, the, the one that did the killing. That's never been rescinded. That covenant has never been done away with. Um, only taking the blood of a murderer will purge the land of defilement. And in the case of unintentional taking of a life, there's still this justice that needs to be carried out. There's a similar stipulation in the case of unintentional manslaughter. Blood pollutes the land regardless of whether the death was intentional or accidental. So no ransom could be paid in the case of manslaughter either. Right? Not in murder, but not in manslaughter that would allow the manslayer to go back to his own land before the high priest had died. In some way, apparently, the blood of the high priest. Now, who is the high priest? He's the one that makes the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the whole nation. Only upon his, only his death atones for the blood shed by the manslayer's victim and satisfies the need for justice. Only the high priest's death can release the manslayer from his banishment and let him go back home. And you, I hope that you are seeing it, aren't you? Only the blood of the high priest can atone for the blood of another for so great of a crime. Even in accidental sins, we are still guilty of sin. Our guilt is too great then. If we're on the hook for what we don't mean to do that is wrong, we are in serious trouble from God's justice. But, by the death of whom, beloved? Our merciful high priest and faithful high priest who now lives to make intercession for us we have been ransomed from God's justice forever. Lastly, notice about the city's refuge that God is mercifully encompassing here everyone in the land. The native Israelite and the sojourner, the foreigner in verse 9. So verse 9 isn't just a summary note for the chapter, but also for God's character. This is who he is. This is what he's like. God includes justice for the sojourner because according to Deuteronomy 10.18, He's also included his love for the sojourner. What the Apostle Paul will tell us of what God will accomplish by the blood of Christ in Ephesians 2.13, we're already reading about here in Joshua. His blood, the death of the great high priest, will bring near even those who are far off. The summary statements in these otherwise you know, seemingly mundane chapters, they call us to worship our God for his faithfulness and here for his compassion, for his mercy. We move into chapter 21 here. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now, 
we'll pick the text back up in verse 43. I won't read through all of that, those allotments tonight. The only authority the Levites had to claim their allotments is God's Word. God had instructed Moses in Numbers 35, 1 through 8, that Israel was supposed to give uh, the Levites cities where they could live and land they could pasture for their own livestock around those cities. The Levites have not forgotten about this. They came to Eliezer, Joshua, and the Israelite leadership to ask that they now receive what God had promised them. This is the third time in Joshua we've seen something like this. We've seen this with Caleb in chapter 14, with the daughters of Zelophehad or Zelophehad in chapter 17. People coming to claim what God had promised them. This is how we should pray, by the way. What God has promised us and authorized us to have, we should pray for. So when you go to pray, don't forget the things that God has actually promised to you. You're asking Him in His own words for those things. Think of a text like James 1.5. That if we lack wisdom and we ask for it, we'll receive it. God has promised to give it. When we're going through trials and we don't understand, He says, pray, ask me for the wisdom to navigate and I will give it to you. When you pray in the midst of a trial, tell God that. Right? You said this, I'm asking you for what you promised. The witness of the Levites way back in Joshua 21 is teaching us how we ought to pray. The Levites, notice, are only asking for what they need here. Right? It's not a, a having God's promises is not like a, you know, an amulet to get whatever you want. It's, it's claiming only what God has promised to give by His Word. They were set apart for spiritual ministry in Israel, right? Offering sacrifices, caring for and maintaining the tabernacle back in Numbers 3 and 4. But they also had earthly needs. So they're charged with spiritual ministry, but they have earthly needs like everyone else. They needed houses to live in, pastures to care for their livestock, etc. What's implied here in Joshua 21 is clearly taught by Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 9 today regarding the ministers of the gospel. Those that care for God's people spiritually should be taken care of by God's people physically. Our church excels at this. right? Our church is wonderful at this. I mean that with all my heart. You are faithful to the Word in that regard. There's no slip up there at all. Again, the provision for the Levites tonight is a sort of parable for us. They receive no land as an inheritance. So in that way, they're much like Abraham. They're, they're much like the sojourners that precede them. They receive no land as an inheritance, but they're only given cities they could live in while they were doing their ministry, while they were living lives of faith. As such, they technically, even though they were Israelites, have only the status of sojourners within the land, don't they? Since they never owned land, they were never going to be able to put down roots. There is a certain lack of putting down roots for every believer in Christ in this world. We know, or we need to know as we go into things, not that it's a sin to own a home or anything like that, our own property, it is not a sin, but we are not putting down roots that we expect or should expect to last forever. We don't have that here. That is something we're not promised here. We are only sojourners here for now. The New Testament will even go as far as to call us exiles in this world. The Levites are a parable for us. They're a sort of visual aid of our fleeting, transitory life here 
on earth. We can't, we shouldn't put down roots here. The world in its current form is passing away. Wherever you put down roots here, that is passing away. It's transient. So, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James 4, 15. But we also, as these sojourners, as these exiles, do have the first fruits of the Spirit. In Romans 8, 23. Therefore, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. It might feel very scary and unsettling to have no lasting city here. But you've heard the saying, not all who wander are lost. Our lives are in the hands of the one who also holds the keys of death and Hades. Right? Our lives belong to the one who was able to open the scroll and open its seals. Because the Levites were to not only provide priests for the altar, but also teachers for the law in Israel, the purpose of these allotments was to support their ministry for the sake of God's people. God desired His people to live by His Word and the mediation of the priests for sin until the true Passover lamb was sacrificed once and for all and such sacrifices would no longer be needed. After these final provisions for the Levites, this section finally brings us to the great testimony of God's fidelity to His promise and His people in the book of Joshua. Look it down at verse 43 in chapter 21. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. Let me read that again. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. That's a promise kept. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Beloved, note that well. Right? So much for the teaching that God's promise to Israel regarding the land somehow remains unfulfilled. This is in Joshua. God didn't break His promise later either. They would lose the land because it was up to them to keep it. They lost what God had given to them. He doesn't owe it to them anymore. These verses are the theological heart of the whole book of Joshua. Right? And when we say that, we're not talking about the sovereignty of Israel as a state and their right to defend themselves. I don't mean that at all. But as far as the promise of God is concerned, I think if we take the plain meaning of the text, we see it here. These verses are the theological heart of this whole book. What this book has been trying to say, why it's there, is to tell us Joshua 21, 43-45. These verses echo the concern of chapter 1, verses 1-9. through right? And then it, they draw a line across everything that came before it also, that got them to that point. Dale Ralph Davis says, this is the jugular vein of the book. I love that. Verse 43, which addresses the land where Israel lives. That summarizes chapters 13-21. to while well, verse 44, the conflict with Israel's enemies, summarizes the victories over these enemies in chapters 1 through 12. And the writer seems to have put these verses right here at this point. It might seem like a problem because we think, 
okay, these words are very final and conclusive, and yet there are still remaining Canaanite peoples, and there's some land that technically hasn't been subdued. But remember, keep this in mind. The author of Joshua knew that too. And yet these are still the words he uses, and these words were given to him by the Holy Spirit. So there's no mistake being made here. There's no contradiction. God had given Israel all the land, as he says in the first part of verse 43. The fact that they might yet possess even more of it doesn't contradict the fact that God had already given all of it to them. And God had given them rest also. Just look at the record of their victories. What's obvious in that is that there's no opponent that's going to be able to withstand them as they have faith in the Lord's promise. There's no doubt about what we're hearing at this point. Verses 43 to 45 are deliberately set up as praise to God for complete, thorough, persistent fidelity to His promises. No Jewish person could have read that and said, no, that's not true. That's not true. No, it is true. They gather up all of the events in Joshua so far. And in that way, Joshua 21, 43 to 45 functions very much like Romans 11, 33 to 36 does. At the end of 11 chapters describing God's great work of justification by faith alone through Jesus Christ as the gospel and the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. The author of Joshua is just pounding his point home here. God is faithful to his promises. He will not fail to do what he says he will do. Not one of his words had fallen. Not one of his words, that is, had failed. Now these are theological statements that help shape our doctrine of God. They're also worship to God for his faithfulness. And the best worship, the best content for worship comes out of good theology about God. Just consider all that's behind these statements in verses 43 to 45. What has transpired up to this point in Scripture for God to say this? Back in Genesis 12 to 15, it sure never looked like God was going to fulfill the promise to Abraham. The only land Abraham ever actually received was the burial plot for Sarah, and he had to buy that. He had to pay for it. And Abraham had his own struggles believing that God would keep his word all through his life. Even as the model of faith, if you will, he still struggled at times to believe. And what did God tell him in Genesis 15, 13? Your descendants will be exiles in a land not their own, where they will be slaves and oppressed for 400 years. And not only did Abraham himself not receive what was promised, or not only did Abraham himself not receive what was promised, but its fulfillment was going to be put off, apparently, for an extended period of time. We all know how time can chip away at our confidence in God's promises. Surely something said so long ago isn't still in force. And then Abraham's descendants have to endure bondage and slavery in Exodus 1-15. through Slaves of Pharaoh don't look like heirs of God. They were going to die, certainly, before, or die making bricks before they ever entered Canaan. But then in the fullness of time, God sent the plagues until Pharaoh relented, at least for a while, long enough that God began to lead his people out of Egypt and toward the land. But then, as if time and slavery weren't enough to threaten the promise, the people themselves seemed to be threatening God's promise in Numbers 13 and 14. They would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. 
that whole generation that God brought out, the adults will die. They will die in the wilderness. They will not go into the promised land. So it's only when we truly see all the barriers God has to smash to keep His Word to us, when we see everything that threatens to trample His promise into dust, trials and tribulations, sickness and suffering, our own sin and lack of faith, it's only when we really take stock of all those things that would prevent it that we truly realize just how tenacious, how relentless, how stubborn, if you will, God is about keeping His promises to His people. Nothing is going to keep Him from doing that because He promised He would do it. It makes me think, and I know I've told you this story before, or at least I, I'm fairly certain I have, but this this was a one of those, they, they talk about core memories. When I wouldn't wear a coat, and I won't go through the whole story, I was in high school, wouldn't wear a coat, infuriated my dad because it was so cold, and I got in all that trouble, and he made me wear that goofy coat, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money, and I came home from school that day of wearing this absolutely humiliating coat. It really was. It was like this rubber, pleather, it was like six sizes. It was ridiculous. And my friends had a field day with me wearing that coat. And so I'm spending the whole day thinking my dad doesn't really love me. You know, I'm a teenager, so I'm sulking. And my dad doesn't love me, and he doesn't care about me, and he just wants to humiliate me. And I'm walking home in this stupid coat, and I get close to the house. And my dad, at the same time, was coming into the house with a bag from Sears with a new coat in it. Now, what was happening there? My dad loved me. And I, I will never forget that because I know it's a strange detail, but we didn't have the money for a coat. I just, I, I, I didn't like the coat that I had. It wasn't that warm. And for some reason as a teenager, the answer was, well, then don't wear a coat. Boys like Carmine doesn't ever want to wear a coat. This is a boy thing, I think. My dad loved me. I was his son. Even if I was rebellious, he didn't want his son to be cold. That, that's, that's that kind of relentless love of a father for children, for his own children. And as Jesus would say, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more does the Father know how to do good to His children? And so that, that, that's never left me. I don't think it ever will. I don't ever really want to eulogize my dad. You know, I don't, I don't want to be at my dad's funeral ever. But I feel like if I'm asked to do that, I have to share that story because of everything in my life with my dad. That story, that's like, I thought the last thing my dad did was love me that day. Right? He's just being mean. No, he wasn't. He was trying to teach me a lesson. As you grow up, you, you kind of learn that about your parents, hopefully. But my dad had committed to take care of me. My dad had committed to provide for me. And so he was going to do it no matter what. That's, that's kind of like this love God. God is relentlessly stubborn. I don't mean, I hope you understand I'm trying to anthropomorphize there. God is not sinfully stubborn, but he's relentlessly stubborn about his promises. I'm, I'm going to keep them. No matter what you do, I'm going to keep them. And thank God that He is, or we would be lost. If God wasn't like this, we would be lost. Think about what Israel has done up to this point. 
I mean, they're still refusing to take the land that God has given them in fullness. And God is saying, look, this is your land. I've given it to you. Your enemies, you can subdue them today. Like this, I've given you rest. It's yours. It's yours. Take it. There's so much that we receive in the promise that we don't get. Or I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word experience, but I, I think it, it fits. There's so much about being secure in Christ that we could experience in our souls, but we don't because we don't trust that the promise is going to hold. We don't believe that it transcends what we're going through in our lives today. And it, it does. It just does. And the more we look at all the things that could keep God from keeping His promise to us, that in order for Him to do it, He has to overcome, I think the deeper this gets into our blood, like God, when He commits to do this for us from start to finish, realize what He's committing to doing, to conquering, to keeping from taking you away from Him or robbing you of your inheritance. All the work that He has to do to keep His promises. And He does it again and again. He will keep His Word. He will move heaven and earth to submit. He will move heaven and earth to cause them to submit to His will. He will cut off all our enemies so that we will truly have peace. Not least of all being the devil himself. But He's also put sin and death in the grave. And the only thing that resurrected was forgiveness. So when King Jesus finally delivers you and I from the evil one and His schemes and His minions, there will finally be no more terror in the night or arrow flying by day. You see, all that, you have that now. We, we don't want an over-realized eschatology, an over-realized uh, doctrine of the end times, as though you know we're we're in heaven now, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. That's an old, old heresy. But you understand that all that God has promised is yours. Now He can talk to you like this because of what Christ has done. And when you read the, you remember when you read these promises that the promises to you and I in the new covenant are established on better promises than these, because they're held by Christ, not by you and I. When He finally delivers us from the evil one and all of His schemes and His minions, there will be no more terror in the night, no more arrow flying by day. Beloved. We will be perfectly safe sitting under His vine or His fig tree. Micah 4, verse 4. And as you go tonight, you remember that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not you and I. God is relentlessly stubborn about keeping His promises. You and I don't have to do anything for them to be true. We just get to enjoy them. And we will. Would you stand? Please.